Hear our prayers, Lord, as we lift up our friends, families, and our church on this day. Lord, your promises in Scripture give us knowledge of your character and your holiness. Through them we come to know you and learn how you wish for us to live our lives. We vow to be the kind of followers you desire us to be and live our lives as ones who have been called to greater goodness by our Lord and King. On this day, Lord, we pray for all those who have had surgeries, who have been ill or under a doctor's care for any reason this past week. You know each and every one by name, and your healing hand has been upon them, giving them the strength that they require. We reach out to them in our prayers and our actions to give them comfort and encouragement as they recover. We also reach out in prayer to those who are grieving on this day, whose hearts ache from the loss of someone they love. May God comfort and surround the family and friends of Theola Scott, who passed from this life this week. And we ask your blessings on all who are on that journey of grief and pray that they can find your strength during this time of mourning. There are many ways that we as a church can reach out to each other in prayer through the prayer cards, the prayer wall on our website, and the prayers that we lift up to you each and every moment of every day. Lord, we are so grateful to be able to come to you in prayer and be part of this amazing process to reach out to each other in this way. Hear our prayers in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 2 Peter, and I'll be reading the second half of verse 1 through verse 11 today. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, 
forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, it is by your power and by your mercy that everything that we need for a godly life is given to us. And we thank you for these words written by your friend, Peter, whom you chose to lead your early church. And Lord, today we ask that that leadership would continue as your words are spoken to us through Peter and through your servant, Pastor Mike, who leads us today. We ask, God, that you would give him the words to speak, that they would be straight from you, and that our ears and hearts would be open to receive them. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. And every once in a while, I I have the privilege of of coming uh, to the sanctuary right as the choir's singing, and so I saw through a monitor out there that they were getting ready to sing, and I went to the back and just listened to your choir, and... Um, yeah, you know, that's awesome. Well done. Well done. So thank you. Beautiful, beautiful work. Um, I, I'm going to have to ask you to hinge yourself on the words. You're going to lack the benefit of what happened at 745 this morning. In this 745 service this morning, um, as I began to speak, this is why you're going to have to pay attention to the words today. A wasp unleashed itself. And one of the pastors, the one not preaching, took a religious document (laughs) and Christ is risen, but that wasp shall not. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sad to report, and Mr. Boss, I see that you're here, the Board of Trustees. We're not certain how it happened, but there is a broken sconce in the chapel right now. Some wasp remains on it. Um, you had to see it to believe it. Christ is risen. Okay, that's where we're going to start. And, uh, You know, he rose not so that we could observe that and see and say, wow, that was a nice moment and story in history and time. No, he he rose so that we might want to pursue him and grow towards him. And so, you know, as your pastor, I want to tell you that that we always have, and and you've seen in the hallway or downstairs or in in, in the website or even in your bulletin, that we have this pathway that we've designed for for you as disciples to continue on your your growth in, 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 and we've, uh, as as a disciple in in Christianity and in strengthening your own soul and your heart and your mind in it. And, And along the way, there's various things, various words that might define where you're at on the spiritual path. And so just on, on behalf of our, our discipleship department, the people that are helping us guide you, that there are three new opportunities happening right now. There's one that's on, on the part that's called an engaging part of the pathway. So if you're really starting to engage your faith, um, there's a study on the book of James that begins Wednesday night at 6.30. It'll be over in the uh, upper level of the car.
Carnegie Building. Um, some people are moving right on from, from Romans, but we invite all of you to come and join us in, in the book of James. Um, today, there's a study on spiritual warfare that's beginning. It's in the deepening category. It's right downstairs in one of the education building uh, rooms uh, in, in Wesley Hall, in, in one of those first four classrooms, and I've forgotten which one, I apologize. I'm over 55, so get over it. Um, and they're stunning me with this. How am I going to expect to remember everything? Um, and, and next week, there's a study called the Daniel Plan, uh, which really looks at the, some biblical principles for growing yourself deeper in faith and also having the, the ancillary benefit of, of of losing, you know, getting, losing some weight and, and getting a more healthy eating pattern. So take a look at that stuff and come along because they'll grow your faith. Now this week, as you saw from the new bulletin insert, and Keith didn't mention it here, but we're not studying the Gospel of John this week. We're looking at uh, how scriptures have helped form this faith, this, this, this tribe of Christianity that we call United Methodism. So we're going to do some United Methodist this distinctives over the next few weeks. And I want to tell you that there are some. We are, as we say, unapologetically Christian and unashamedly United Methodist. Now, why would that be? Because there's something distinct about us. I remember a number of years ago, and this is a story that'll hit you like a mule. I was talking to one of the local superintendents of schools here, and I asked them, what church do you go to? It was before I was the pastor here, incidentally. They said, well, I grew up a Catholic. I came into uh, Lutheranism because I got married, but now I'm trying to wean myself off religion, so I'm a Methodist. (laughs) It's funny, but I did not find it so. And I've had other conversations over the years about United Methodism, and I remember once being very clear in a group of adults, one of which was a Methodist, and they were talking about the various, you know, groups within Christianity, Protestant Christianity, and one of them said, well, I love being a United Methodist because we don't really believe in anything. Well, as a pastor, those are gut shots. That, that is not correct. Because the opposite is true. As a matter of fact, we believe in some very specific things, and we found our lives and our way of doing Christianity, of expressing ourselves as Christians, on some very distinct things. And we're going to spend a part of our time over the next few weeks telling you about some of them. I want to tell you there is some good news in this. Marian Methodist feels very strongly that we are to move the Christian way forward. As a matter of fact, hear this, those of you that are eight, at 830 service, we are one of four what's considered very large United Methodist churches in the state of Iowa. We are the second largest church in Iowa, uh, United Methodism, by way of attendance. We're one of those three large churches that is actually having a grow, but it's considered slow growth right now. And as I look at a few empty pews, I know it's not Easter Sunday, but I want to tell you as evangelists, there's opportunity for you to help us grow our pews. We can't simply let this death tsunami overtake us. It's important for us because we believe, and that's why we're going to spend some time helping you understand exactly what's distinct between us and maybe some other faith traditions so that you might be bringing your friends, bringing your relatives to come to know Jesus Christ through the expression that we know as United Methodism. So United Methodism, where do we come from? 
where did United Methodism come from? Well, we are a, a strain of what was known several hundred years ago of the Protestant Reformation. In 1500s, Martin Luther, uh, a priest in the Catholic Church, uh, wrote his 93 Theses, pounded them onto the door at, at Wittenberg, and the Protestant Reformation was on. Because up until that time, there was only one strain of Christianity. You know it today as the Roman Catholic Church. Back then, it was the church, not to say that they all agreed on every single thing, but there was one group of priests, one group of everything, and, and it was the church. But in the 1500s, the church began to, to, to open wide and, and, and see Christianity as broader than it was. This rose up from an angst with the status quo of Christianity in its time. Again, later, a reform movement within the, United, within the Church of England began in the 1700s. Now, that movement is part of what you're a part. So a couple hundred years of Protestant Reformation was going on. The Protestants were growing. The Church of England was formed, whose head, of course, is Jesus Christ, but whose leader is who? The king or queen, right? The church, England has two kinds of churches or had two kinds of churches then, the Church of England and the Catholic Church. Okay, but the Church of England was the state church. It was funded by the state. And in it came these two young men named Charles and John Wesley. Of all the names you need to know in Methodism, Wesley's one of them. Charles and John Wesley are brothers. John's the older brother, born in 1707. His brother Charles, or 1703, apologize. His brother Charles was born in 1707. My confirmation students are correcting me. They've been through all this with Pastor Mike. Now, the important reason to learn Wesley, the, the name Wesley, is because you've probably heard of some things named Wesley. For those of you that are newer members of the church, in the 1960s, this church built an education building that we call it many things, but is officially known as Wesley Hall. Huh. I went to a college named Iowa Wesleyan. There's 40 colleges named Wesleyan, and they're named after? Huh. So these guys are important to our story. There's much more I can tell you about them, and I'm just going to tell you a few things. They had a father that they just absolutely adored. His name was Samuel. And he was a holy man. He was a priest in the Church of England, and he gave his life and soul to Christ and his ministry. And they too became priests. But as they became more priests, less more priest and less person in the pew, in their dad's pews, they became more and more disenfranchised with, with what had become of the Church of England. Because what they saw as they grew into their roles in seminary and so forth, that the Church of England was drifting away from the teachings of the Bible. When, when Keith read that a few moments ago, this was one of the scriptures that the Wesleys saw. Let me, let me read a little bit from, from Second Peter again. His divine power, speaking of God, has given us everything we need for a godly life. And there was John and Charles at Oxford University, one of the great universities of England, seeing that the Church of England had everything they needed for a godly life, but were choosing not to have one. He's given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises. The quiver is full, you see. The heart can be filled with faith and we know what to do next. So through them, that you might participate in the divine nature of God. You see, one of the things that Wesley is really going to teach us a lot, both Wesley's, are that you're not observers of God's work. That in the Methodist tradition, in the Wesleyan tradition, we are to be participants in the work of God in the world. So through them that you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil 
desires. You see, the Wesley brothers saw that the Church of England and her pastors were living corrupted lives. They were focused on money and women and cavorting and carrying on. And they weren't the least bit faithful. They weren't even prepared on their Sunday mornings. And they were preaching whatever they wanted and simply going through the liturgy as if it was paint drying. So they began to pray, did John and Charles Wesley. They prayed for, for people that were like-minded uh, with them, that also had this passionate call of Christ on their heart. And they began to gather at this place in Oxford College that they called the Holy Club. The Holy Club is the core of our beginning. This handful of gentlemen began to, to meet. And the Holy Club becomes the Methodists. And there's how they, this is how they became the Methodists. And, and don't make it hard. They had a systematic way of living a holy life. John and Charles and uh, other names that you might know, but I won't um, run too many names at you today. They believed in having weekly communion, and they practiced that. They believed in, in regular fasting. They believed in tithing their offerings. They believed in abstaining from most forms of amusement that drew them away from God. And they, they, they took part in weekly visitations of the poor, the sick, and the imprisoned. And they were branded Methodist. Because of their method, their systematic living of the Christian faith. And I want to remind you that their way of doing religious affairs was not something that was adored at Oxford. It was not something that was adored within the Church of England. The word Methodist started as a word of disdain. Look at those Methodists. Losers. They're always praying. Always fasting. Always trying to sink God's will in their world. And so as we began, we were kind of this, this group that never, incidentally, never had any inclination of breaking from the Church of England. Because that's not where they started. As a matter of fact, what they wanted to do was renew the Church of England by God's strong hand. So, in the 1720s, when these boys were later on in their college years and had become priests, where is the mission field in the world? Especially the English mission field. It's the colonies. The American colonies. So they get on a boat and they head over to, to the Americas, specifically Savannah, Georgia. Now I want to tell you that the Wesleys had a failed mission to America. They had a failed mission to America. See, when, when, when John Wesley was on his way over with Charles, they were in a boat that had many people on it. Of course, remember sails. They don't have hovercrafts or planes or anything like that. They're coming across this, and they hit this horrible storm. And the storm is so strong, it breaks the mast of the boat, which is a pretty big deal when you're on a sailboat, right? And people on the boat were running here or there. They're freaking out. But there was this small group of Moravian Christians. You'll hear more about them in time in days to come. These Moravians just got together and began to pray and sing hymns. And Wesley saw the world was falling apart around them. Himself was freaked out. He wanted to know if he was supposed to get on a lifeboat. And here were the Moravians. Through storm, through the tossing of the ship, just praying. Just singing. Just being faithful. And Wesley there that day was convinced of his inner weakness. He was convinced of the inner weakness of his faith. And yet he was so far along the journey he had to pursue where it was going. So when he got to Savannah, Georgia, he had, very unpolitically correct, by the way, he established and had some backers for his mission to the heathen red, that is to say the American Indian. But because of language barriers and their pantheistic faith uh, backgrounds, now I'm summarizing books, by the way, in a couple sentences. The Indians really didn't want to hear his message. So he was failing terribly in that. And then in the church, his funding source was this little Tory Church of England church in Savannah, Georgia. 
And John Wesley, I always show the confirmation kids. I said, John Wesley was like this for Sophie Hopkins. And she was like to him. He loved her. She didn't love him. So much did she not love him that she went off and, hot, and, and married another person. And John Wesley was her parish priest. So it came to pass when John Wesley's heart was broken and when he was at the depth of his despair, they were having Holy Communion. And I want to tell you a story that's changed our communion forever, but that's what I'll end this service with. As she came forward to communion, and he, had the, he held the elements of the body and blood of Christ, he reached out to her as if to say, this is for you. But instead, he said, the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is not for you. And in withholding communion for her, in addition to claiming later that was the biggest mistake he'd ever made, that was his last day at the church. As a matter of fact, if you know anything about the American colonies and the English society that was going on at the time, John Wesley was jailed for that because he was in the Church of England. Even though he was in the U.S., so he was jailed because of this offense. Again, summarizing a long story. And kind of in the middle of the night, of one of the nights that he was there in the jail waiting to be tried, the jailer kind of kicked the door open for him and said, there's a boat leaving for England right now. Be on it, which he was. Now, when he came back to, 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 uh, to uh, England, of course, he was sad and depressed and all that, but he understood this, and this is what we came from, is that we understand that God uses failure for kingdom successes. God uses the failure of the Wesleys for kingdom successes. Because here's what happened. One of the most astonishing things, when the Wesley brothers got back to, to England, the preachers became Christian. You kind of would have thought they'd started with that, right? But John and Charles were so despondent, so so downtrodden, that they, they started to question their own faith and began to go to these prayer meetings with other groups, not with the Church of England, with other groups. And, and Charles Wesley had an experience on May 21, 1738, where he said this, the Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. So John and Charles Wesley had been to, to, been to America, and, and Charles knew that he had this disbelief because why wasn't God's plan happening among the American Indians? Why was God's plan not happening in the church that they were leading? Why was God's plan that they thought was for revival and transformation of the, of the Church of England not happening? Why do I doubt so much? And in a prayer meeting, this happened. Now, John Wesley saw that his brother was completely changed, and he wanted that too. And he was kind of angry at God, kind of like in a Jonah type of way, if you know that story at all. God was mad, or John Wesley was mad that the younger brother got the blessing first. And he was furious. And so in, in, in three days later, on, on May 24, 1738, read this. In the evening, I went unver- very unwilling to a society in Aldersgate Street. That's, a, that's a, 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 a church, a Moravian church. And he was listening there to, to the pastor read Paul, uh, Luther's Preface to the Romans, which is thick, difficult reading. But when he got there, about a quarter to nine, while he was still describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And what Wesley would go on, John Wesley would go on to write about later is this, that he felt for the first time in his heart the love of God, the love that God had for him that he'd always known about. So his heart religion matched his head religion and then, praise be to God, something big starts. Until their conversions, I know there's a lot of words on the screen. Until their conversions, the Wesleys had both preached and taught and wrote and composed hymns. As a matter of fact, you're going to see that Charles Wesley composed over 6,000 hymns. John Wesley, 100 or so. 
And what they really did was they composed lyrics and put them to songs that already exist. And during the next month, today included, you're only going to be singing hymns at the 830 service that were composed by John or Charles Wesley. They even gave themselves to missionary work by coming to America, by visiting the poor and the sick, all to no avail. They were not having people convert to Christ because they had not Christ. Old English writing. They had not Christ, or rather, Christ did not have them. See, I want to be had by Christ. I want to have Christ, and I want to be had by Christ. They lived good works, but not by faith, and their conversions changed everything. Because when John and Charles Wesley was, were converted, what happened was a huge English revival began. All the members of the Holy Club, within a short period of time, had Christ. They all were renewed in him. And they began to preach enthusiastically. And there's some very few concepts that they preached about. They preached about the, new, the need for the new birth of salvation, which is to say a person to know Christ must be born again, because they all had been. And they talked about the fact that the scriptures say that you must be born by the water of baptism and the spirit of God that comes and fills your heart. And this is a Methodist doctrine. They preach the fact that you must be justified by faith. That works alone, while very good, were not complete faith. You needed to be receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that is how you received your salvation. That is how your soul was restored. And it's because of that then you went out. And they believed and preached um, enthusiastically. That the Holy Spirit is constantly at work on the, bo- on, on the believer's thro- soul. So now, here's what happens. This revival is spreading in the Church of England throughout England. It's blowing up the churches. And the movement was mostly thriving among those of the working class. Or as the establishment of the church would say, the unintelligent, uneducated. Because... See, they'd gotten so enthusiastic in their preaching. Some parts of the world call them the shouting Methodists. They'd become so enthusiastic in their preaching that they were banned from preaching in the Church of England settings. But the Holy Spirit was upon this movement. They were not to be stopped. So they began to preach in what the church leaders called extremely vulgar settings. Farmhouses taverns, and horror upon horror, the public square. Anywhere two or more would gather, Wesley and his group would preach. And the outcome was that England was transformed. If you go back and look at the Wesley and the Methodist revival in England, England changed for several generations because thousands of people came to Christ. John Wesley never left England again. He preached over 100,000 sermons in England, the remainder of the balance, the 50 years of his life. And he also knew that he was not done with America. See, the new mission to America began as soon as the English revival got into a deep place. Now, what John Wesley and Charles did was we need to take some of these young guys. These, and by the way, it was all men at this time. So uh, I can't change history. That's the way it was. They wanted to take some of these young men, and particularly they pulled one out. They called one from the herd named Francis Asbury, and that's a name you might know, you Methodists. And they sent him to America to preach Christ. And when he got to America, the first thing he said was, I need help. People are responding to the message, I need help. And so John and Charles now have completely broken from the Church of England, and they sent him a message back and said, ordain who you need. And so they began, John and Charles Wesley, Francis Asbury, along with Thomas Koch, ordaining Methodist preachers that are known as circuit riders. 
They, they began to, 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 to ordain circuit riders, which were very young men, and all they had was a Bible horse, coat, and money, and they'd go through America. Now, they would be in circuits. This little church that you're in right now was started from a pastor years ago who came on a horse, and he was part of the Rock Island, Illinois circuit. Can you imagine that circuit? took him six weeks to complete it. And if you ever notice across the Midwest, you ever notice this across the Midwest, that there's a Methodist church about a day's horse ride from the last one? Because that's how they were planted. They would go to a place where they could find a friend, an ally, and preach at their house, at the bar in the church, place, at the country school or whatever, get Methodist preaching meetings. It didn't have to be Sunday. It generally wasn't Sunday. And they would ride this circuit. The farthest most point of the Rock Island circuit was this church here. Started with just 11 people. But John and Charles Wesley decided we need to send missionaries to the world, and they did. They saw the, the world was their parish, and missionaries were sent everywhere. As a matter of fact, at our height, United Methodism in the United States had over 11 million subscribers. We at one time was the largest. The Southern Baptist passed us a while back. And then, as we began to become very strong, we began to send missionaries to the Southern Hemisphere and to the Eastern hemisphere. Now here's the good news, and I'm going to give it to you the bad news at the same time. The church is growing. The church is growing. Just not here. Church is growing in the world. The movement of Jesus Christ is growing in the world, but it is not growing in the United States. It is not. As a matter of fact, the United Methodist Church from 1968 to 2016 has gone from 11 million to a little bit light of 8 million members. That's a lot. Now we might say, well, our church is growing, but I'm saying corporately, not necessarily. Nearly 75 million, and I know I've got the wrong number up there, nearly 75 million people in the world today are part of the Wesleyan movement, the World Methodist Council. So I come to you with this message, and I know they agree with it. United Methodism, it could be great in our generation. It could be great in our generation here in Marion. See, there's this great theological experiment, and this is part of our demise, but it's also part of our great greatness. United Methodism was this great theological experience that put people together that had different viewpoints on things. You see, it's one of the most interesting things Wesley ever said. He says, as to opinions which do not strike at the root of Christianity, we say think and let think. There is no demonization, demonization of other opinions. You see, that means that the Wesleyan church for the, from its very beginning decided we're going to try as Christians to listen to each other, to hear conservative and liberal together, to be in one place and worship God, but we're going to cling to, to some essentials. You don't see that in the world today. As a matter of fact, most of the churches that you've ever been in have a doctrinal statement that say, this is how we believe, there is no other choices. If you don't fit, thanks for playing, go somewhere else. But the Methodist experiment, for good or for bad, for 300 years, has decided that we're trying, going to try to push Christianity together while not necessarily agreeing. So I would suspect, and I don't even worry about this, I don't debate this to be true, you guys seem to know. If you're going to make your religion some part of American uh, politics, there are in this congregation right now this morning, Republicans, Democrats, Independents. You're all here. And we need to understand that. And that's actually part of our way. I could take you to about 10 churches in Cedar Rapids that you couldn't find a Republican, and I could take you to 10 others that you couldn't find a Democrat in the whole place. And if they were, they'd be in the closet. Wesley said, in essentials, unity. 
in non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Just because we think it doesn't make it correct. Wesley said, and I, I agree, we're ignorant in many things and mistaken in some. The mind of humanity is always trapped by knowing what we know right now. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. Because the crucial matter in all this is steadfast love of God, neighbor, empowered by the redeeming and sanctifying of the Holy Spirit. And we do have a final authority. Never mistake that, that there is no marrow in United Methodist Christianity. Because I'm going to tell you what it is. This is the marrow. This is the non-negotiable in all Christianity. You've read it in the newsletter. You've read it other places. It is upon everything we do, we hang on scriptures. Scripture is the primary resource for our life together. It's a primary resource for developing our faith. It is upon which everything else hangs. Do we embrace human experience? Absolutely. Do we think the traditions of the church are valued? Yes. Are, 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 are people, uh, you know, are, do we are, use our reasoning minds? Of course. And into that, in biblical Christianity, there are three teachings that John Charles Wesley saw as the foundation of the Christian faith. First, people are by nature fallen. We are dead in sin, and consequently, if we get what we deserve, we're children of wrath. We're fallen. We, you know, we are created perfect and pure, and we broke ranks with God. Therefore, we're sinners, and we need forgiveness. And if we get what we deserve, we get wrath. But praise be to God, the second thing is true for us, too, is that people are justified by faith and faith alone. I always say, look in the Scriptures when you're reading about how things are going. You read Romans, some of these things. It says, this is what humanity is doing. And then it says, but God, which means it reverses everything. See, we are lost in our sin, but God determined that if we believe in Him, we are justified. We are His forever. And His grace pours forth upon us. We don't deserve it. It's unmerited. He alone saves us, and God reaches out to the repentant heart and forgives you. And third, because you've been saved, faith produces inward and outward holiness. See, you cannot be saved from anything without having some sort of human response. The natural desire of the saved is to do something. So internally, we call this piety. P-I-E-T-Y, piety. It means we seek in our inner hearts and our inner thoughts with our activities of our own spirits to please God. And externally, we try to, we, we produce what's called acts of mercy. Which is to say we serve God by serving the others in God's world. So, you see, United Methodists are distinct. And over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to encourage you to join in to part of our distinctness and understand that there are many different tribes in Christianity. But we cling to this because we are unapologetically Christian and unashamedly United Methodist. And there are some things that are distinct about us, and here's one of them. While all Christians around the world take communion, we usually have a slide up on the board that reminds you that in Holy Communion, this is for all people. If you're Jesus, if you're one of Jesus, see what it says? The United Methodists celebrate an open communion and invites everyone to the Lord's table. And if you're a visitor, please know that you're welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. We have all these bags we take out to people that are not here with us. But I, and we have all these things we do. But here's the thing, and it's as simple as this. If Christ is yours and you are his, when we're ready and you're ready... 
Come and eat and drink at your Lord's table. On the last night of his life, our Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread. Common to his day, we're certain. He came before his disciples. He broke it. He offered it to them and said, take and eat, for this bread represents my body. Just as you'll see my body broken before you, you see, as you, you'll, you've seen this bread broken before you, so eat it in remembrance of me. Every time you eat bread, remember me. And after the supper, after everyone had had their fill, the Lord Jesus took a cup, gave thanks to his Father in heaven, and then said, drink from this, all of you. For in the cup is the wine which represents my blood, which is shed for you and for many for forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread, drink this wine in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of all of God's mighty acts of salvation, past, present, and those to come, we give thanks to God, knowing that through him we can receive our salvation. So friends, come and eat and drink at our Lord's table.